0: Well, again, good morning and welcome to worship here at Union Church. My name is Mark, and it's a joy to, to come into God's presence with you today to worship and to come under His Word. What a what a difference it is one week to the next. Last week, uh, if you were here, we, we had our remembrance, our annual remembrance service, which is really special, really kind of different. And then in the evening last week, we had the Metro Big Band, which was really, really special and really, really different, too, from the morning, so we couldn't have had two more different services throughout the day, but they were both wonderful and well-attended, and I hope you enjoyed those. Today we're just back to normal, so regular old, plain old Sunday, right? So um, sometimes we find ourselves in really dark places, really hard places where we struggle Kind of like right now, struggling Airplanes. airplanes. Um, sometimes we find ourselves in hard places, dark places, places of struggle, places of obstacles in life. But I will tell you this, even when it may not seem like it, there is always a light at the end of the tunnel. There's always light. There is always hope. And there is always within us this implanted nature of the imago Dei the image of God within every single one of us. And part of that implanted nature means that human beings, because of God being with us, we want to carry on. Even in the struggle, we want to to get to the light at the end of the tunnel. We want to to prevail. Another way to say that is just that life always seeks more, right? Right? Life always seeks more, to live more abundantly. Life seeks to perpetuate itself, to prolong itself, to carry on. It's part of, it's part of God's nature within us. And, and that, that is because God created life. And God created us, within us, this urge and desire to carry on and to carry forth in spite of the struggles and obstacles that may be in our way. Whatever those trials and tribulations may be for any given one of us, whether it's boredom or stress or loneliness or troubles or tragedy or or just the the, the things we see in the news every day that that are troubling, whatever it may be, there is a God-given striving within every one of us to carry on. That's why... We're here every week, right? That's why we're here, to worship together, to come into the presence of God, to to participate in God's love, to participate in Christ-centered worship together, because Jesus is the divine giver of life. And that brings us to the story of Joseph, right? Joseph was a guy who just could not catch a break. I mean, have you ever felt like Joseph? Times in your life where you just can't catch a break, right? Well, this is week four. This is the final week in our our study of the life of Joseph. And in the first three weeks, we did see this, that Joseph just could not catch a break with anything. Stuff kept going wrong with Joseph and for Joseph. Joseph had been wounded by family, He had been sold into slavery by his brothers. He was falsely accused and imprisoned by his employer. He was 14 years wrongly imprisoned. And then one of the men he met in prison was going to do something to help him get out of prison. And you remember what happened? He forgot, right? He forgot. He broke his promise. And Joseph didn't get out. But this week, in our fourth week of the study of Joseph, we finally see Joseph catches a break. Things finally begin to go right for Joseph. He gets out of jail and then his talent begins to shine through and God's favor is upon Joseph and Joseph ultimately gets promoted to be the the number two in power under Pharaoh in all of Egypt. Things finally start to go right for Joseph. Did anyone see the, um, the launch yesterday, the SpaceX launch yesterday? They did another test launch. I watched some of the videos this morning. Pretty cool, pretty cool stuff, like the, the precision that goes into launching a, a huge rocket into space. And um, it didn't quite make it, but, you know, it was a big improvement over the, the first test launch. And, um, you know, I remember I, I was kind of a child of the space shuttle. You all know, remember the space shuttle? So I grew up, you know, seeing these space shuttle launches, which were really, really incredible to, to watch and to understand the precision required to, to launch the space shuttle from Earth into the heavens. And, and to, to land the space shuttle, I, I think this is really fascinating. To land the space shuttle took incredible precision, the, the landing procedure would start with the space shuttle at something like 235, give or take, miles above the Earth. It's very, very high up, right? And it's traveling at 17,500 miles an hour. That's like 28,000 kilometers per hour. I had to look that one up. And so it's pretty fast. And then to start landing, somewhere over Australia, they fire rockets that, that slow down the space shuttle, or they, or they did. And the, the space shuttle would, would lose all of its forward motion, and it would begin to freefall toward the Earth over Australia from 235 miles above the Earth. And it would freefall, and at that point it had no, no engine power, it was just free-falling, just, kind of, just kind of gliding, and it would come into the Earth's atmosphere somewhere over Australia, and then it would land on the complete opposite side of the Earth on a three-mile or five-kilometer-long runway with no engine power. There were no do-overs. There were no go-arounds with the space shuttle. It required incredible Precision and, and the space shuttle was, was really big. It was like the size of a building. And so this thing free-falling from 235 miles at 17,500 miles an hour, going around the world to land on just basically a tiny, tiny runway. They got one shot at it. It was amazing. And, and I think what, one reason I tell you that is is, to, is that this says something about the predictable physics of how God created the universe. Because of those predictable physics, these these precise calculations can be be made and and manifest. And it also means something about what it means to be a human being created by this same God who who made the predictable physics of the universe. Right? You think about the glory of what it means to be a human being made in, in the imago Dei. Right? So we're made in the image of God, but then we also know that we, we struggle with sin and suffering and wretchedness as human beings. Yet even so, we have hope. We have hope. If we didn't have hope, we would not be gathered here this morning. We have hope because God has a plan and God has fulfilled His plan. A plan of restoration, a plan of redemption, a plan with with great precision. Now, in the beginning, God, He started the plan of redemption. This is found in Genesis chapter 3. So, this thing, it's like God's plan was dialed way back, like the space shuttle 235 miles above the earth. It's kind of like that when the plan begins. And by the time we get to the story of Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis, right, <clears throat> God is going to land his plan of redemption <clears throat> on that little runway. He's going to land it with precision. And God does it by way of family wounds, by way of betrayal, by ways of broken promises. He does all of this to land his plan of redemption on the human Runway, the redemption of all hurt and death through His ongoing plan of salvation. And I want you to know something this morning. God doesn't just exact His plan of repurposing and redemption for other people and for other circumstances. Brothers and sisters, He works His plan of redemption for you and for your circumstances, and for your situations as well. Amen? It's for your life. Now, the last 14 chapters of the book of Genesis are the story of Joseph. So we've been going through these together. It begins in Genesis 41, and it's, it's a neat story, about Joseph. It's a great narrative in Genesis, but, it, but it's not only a neat story. It, it's also a foreshadowing of an even greater story that's going to take place in the rest of uh, the, the biblical narrative, that God is sending a redeemer, that God is sending a repurposer to defeat sin and evil and to reconnect us with the God our souls so desperately long for. So Joseph, Joseph, after being down on his luck for for most of his life, now by God's intervention, Joseph is exalted. He's the number two man right there behind uh, Pharaoh. He's basically like the prime minister of Egypt. And that's actually real history. And God gifted Joseph to interpret dreams. And Joseph had a dream that, there would be seven years of of good crops throughout the known world. And then his dream also told him that after those seven years of harvest, that there would be seven years of extreme famine all over the earth. And Joseph told Pharaoh his dream and Joseph and Pharaoh, they devised a, a great plan of a, a centralized system to gather in the, the, the great harvest of those seven years and to warehouse the grain so that in the seven years of famine, they would be able to have enough grain for, for people to, to live and survive. And that's all found in chapter 41 of Genesis. We're not going to read all of that, but, but what we have is at the very end of chapter 41 of Genesis, it's Genesis 41, verse 57, the Scripture says this, all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. And that famine included the land of Canaan where Joseph grew up and where his father and his brothers still lived. Now, we're going to cover a lot this morning. We're going to go through like five chapters. We're not going to read everything. We're going to kind of kind of hit, hit hit through some of that. If you want to keep your Bible open or we'll have it on the screens as, as well. But it's a great story, this, uh, this story, and these are some, a great part of the story. We're not going to read all of it, like I said. I would encourage you, you know, this afternoon or in your time this week, just read, to read the story of Joseph or to read these last five chapters of the story of Joseph because really, it's really wonderful. It's a great story. So we'll go to chapter 42, verse 1. Chapter 42, verse 1, when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt. So this is Joseph's father, Jacob. When he learned there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why are you looking at each other? I've heard there's grain in Egypt. So they have no idea what has happened to Joseph after all these years. But Jacob says, go down there, buy some grain for us so that we don't die. And, and you know, again, that's part of this human condition to, to, with, with, that God's put within us to, to want to live, to want to thrive. Right. So, so not, we don't want to die. We want to keep going on. And verse 3, Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. So these, these were the brothers who beat Joseph, and then they cold-blooded sold him into slavery. Remember that? These are the same brothers. Verse 4, Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain for there was famine in the land of of Canaan also. Um, So Benjamin is Joseph's only full brother. They were the two brothers born to the mother, Rachel. And you can see there's still this family dysfunction of favoritism going on because now that Joseph is gone, Benjamin is his father's Favorite son. Verse six. Verse six. So Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all the people. So again, Jacob. Jacob's father. Fo- I'm sorry. Again, Jacob thinks that his son Joseph is dead. Right? He's he's been gone for twenty years. He's been, he thought he's dead for twenty years. His brothers don't really know what's happened to him. They don't know if he's dead or alive or what's going on with Joseph um, after they sold him as a slave. Joseph has now been fully, I don't know if this is a real word, but he's been fully Egyptianized, okay? He's been fully Egyptianized. He, he doesn't look like or act like a Hebrew shepherd anymore. He is culturally, educationally, physically Egyptianized. He's the prime minister of Egypt. He's like, if you look, in, you know, if you look at pictures of what like, Egyptian nobility would have looked like, that's what Joseph would have looked like. He was fully Egyptianized. He looked like Egyptian nobility. He was kind of a big deal. And he, he was married to an, like a top tier kind of Egyptian woman. So he's fully Egyptianized in every way except for his faith. He had not Egyptianized his trust in the one true God. So when his brothers saw him, they just saw this big, powerful pagan looking egyptian ruler and they did what all the other foreigners did when they come came to buy grain in egypt verse 6 it says when joseph's brothers arrived they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground so the last time they had seen joseph he was 17 years old and you think now it's 20 years later he's like 37 years old This next time they see him. He's fully Egyptianized. Verse 7. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger, and he spoke harshly to them. He said, where do you you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Now, what an amazing coincidence. What an amazing... I mean, you couldn't make this up. This is God piecing everything together with precision. Like... In the first week of this series, we talked about how, you know, like these events are like God putting puzzle pieces together. These are like amazingly precise puzzle pieces that God's putting together. Verse 8, verse 8, although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, you're spies. You've come to, to see where our land is unprotected. And Joseph remembered his dreams that started all of this. And and if you remember in his his dream, his 11 brothers were bowing down to him. But in this case, he only sees 10 brothers before him. And he's thinking, where is Benjamin? Where is my full-blood brother Benjamin, right? And maybe Joseph was, you know, Joseph was presumed dead. Benjamin's become his father's favorite, you know, Perhaps Joseph is wondering if Benjamin has been treated the same way he was treated by his brothers, right? Has has Benjamin been beat up? Has he been beat up? Has he been killed? Has he been abused? Have they murdered him? And so we don't really know what's going on in Joseph's mind, but maybe he's thinking something like that. He's remembering his dream. Eleven brothers bowing down. Here's only ten brothers. Where is Benjamin? And so he continues to put pressure on his brothers. He continues to accuse his brothers. He's trying to catch them off guard. He's trying to get them to talk. And they do and they blurt out. We'll skip down to verse 13. They blurt out. They reply, "Your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father who is no more." Now, that's Benjamin. He's with the father. He he's with the father and he says there's they say there's one who is no more. They're talking about Joseph. And Joseph says, it's just as I told you, you're spies. And he keeps accusing them. They keep denying it in fear. They're like, dude, this is not going good, right? This is going very bad here in Egypt for us. We skip down to verse 19. Joseph said, if you're honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go back, take the grain for your households, but then you must bring back your youngest brother to me so that your words are confirmed, right? So your words are confirmed. And so they proceeded to do this. Verse 21, they said to one another, surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. And that's why this distress has come upon us now. This is interesting, right? In front of Joseph, they go into this big argument with one another. And they're standing there and they are recounting the whole story of what had happened and what they did to Joseph and how he pled for his life and how they did not care. They did not listen to him. But do you know what they don't know? They don't know that as they're talking amongst themselves in Hebrew that Joseph Understands Hebrew, right? He can hear and understand what they're saying. He has been speaking to them in Egyptian through an interpreter, but he knows Hebrew and they don't know it. And so Joseph has their brother Simeon bound and put in prison. He tells the rest of them to go. He puts this pressure on them to test them. But at the same time, Joseph is actually being gracious to them. He fills their bags to the brim and he secretly puts their money back in their, in their packs. They don't know it. And he gives them food and drink for the journey. He goes above and beyond to be gracious to his brothers. Verse 26. They loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. At the place they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw the silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. You know, uh-oh. Now they think they're going to be accused of stealing from the prime minister and their hearts sank and they turned to one another trembling and they said what is this that God has done to us It's interesting you know after 20 years it's like their conscience their conscience and their guilt is now getting the better of them because you can't just outrun what they have done 20 years earlier and their faith is telling them that God is up to something and their harsh circumstances are causing them to turn and to, to begin to ask some questions of God. This is the first time in the whole narrative we've seen the, bu- the brothers say anything about God. After 20 years of guilt, after 20 years from what they had done to their brother Joseph, they're, they're finally being forced to deal with God, to deal with their guilt. Has life ever forced you to deal with God? You know, life will do that. Hard circumstances will do that to us. And the story keeps going. We're going to go into chapter 42. Chapter 42, verse 29. I guess we're already in 42. Chapter 42, verse 29. When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened. And in verse 36, their father Jacob said to them, you have deprived me of my children Joseph is no more, you know, from 20 years ago. Simeon is no more. He's in jail in Egypt. And now you want to take Benjamin. Everything's against me. Have you ever felt that way? Everything's against you, right? That's how Jacob's feeling here. And for Jacob, reality is actually the complete opposite of how he's feeling, right? He feels like everything's against him. He's losing his sons, but actually, God is doing a work to help and to save and to repurpose the pain of this family. Right? God's doing something. Jacob has no idea what God is doing here, but God is doing something. Everything seemed against him, but the exact opposite is the reality. Right? Sometimes that happens in our lives, right? We feel like maybe everything's going wrong, but actually behind the scenes, God is doing something to redeem you or to save you. We just because we're human, we just can't see the big picture of what God may be up to. I've heard it put this way that we are like ants crawling across a Rembrandt painting, right? So we don't know like an ant, we don't know it's like this really this really special painting, you know. But we're like ants crawling across a Rembrandt painting. All we know we can't see the big picture of it. We can't see what the image is. All we know is like sometimes we, we crawl into a place and the paint is a light color and it seems light and it seems good. And then sometimes we crawl into a place and the, it's a dark splotch of paint and things seem really dark and things seem really bad. But we have no idea of the big picture because we, we just don't have the capacity to see the big picture. We have the ant's perspective story goes on in verse 38. Jacob says, My son, talking about Benjamin, my son will not go down there with you to Egypt. Right? He says, He's kind of like you trifling brothers. Right? You keep losing all my children. So, he says his brother is dead. Joseph thinks, Jacob thinks Joseph is dead. And he's the only one left. If harm comes to Benjamin on the journey, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. So the brothers, they don't go back to Egypt. Time goes on. They feed the Egyptian grain to their animals. They are surviving the famine. But it's a long famine. They're two years into the famine. You remember how many years it was going to be? Seven years. Seven years. They don't know that right? They're like the ants. They don't have this perspective. They don't know it's going to be seven years. And so the harsh realities of the famine are ultimately going to set in and are going to force Jacob to have to send his sons back to Egypt. And eventually they run out of grain. Jacob has no choice. The famine will kill them. It'll kill his beloved son, Benjamin, if he doesn't do something, right? If he doesn't take a chance. And so Jacob tells them, to go back to Egypt to take twice the original amount of, um, of silver and to take some special gifts. And this is kind of a timeless example of how often we will not change until the circumstances force us to make changes. Maybe needed changes, right? So Jacob here, reality is forcing him to change. The story continues. We'll go to chapter 43. Chapter 43, verse 15, the men, the brothers, they took the gifts, they doubled the amount of silver, they took Benjamin also, they hurried down to Egypt, and they presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, take these men to my house, slaughter an animal, prepare a meal, they are to eat with me at noon. So the brothers are all afraid. You know, they're thinking, "Why is he inviting us to dinner? Why is he inviting us to his house? Maybe he's inviting us to his house just so he can like kill us there, where nobody will know it, nobody can see it. What's he going to do?" And on the way to the house, they they desperately try to explain to the steward how they got the money back in their sacks, but they didn't they didn't know it. It just kind of appeared there. And in verse twenty three, the steward says, "He says it's all right." It's all right. Now the word there is shalom. Shalom. Shalom means peace. It means well-being. It means completeness. It means soundness. It means wholeness. It means goodness. He says, it's all right. Right? It's all right. You've got your shalom. It's all right. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your Father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. And then he brought Simeon to join them. So God's working through this, this human agent, the steward. He says, it's shalom. It's all right. And verse 26, verse twenty six, Joseph came home. Present, they presented to him the gifts that they had brought. And they bowed down before him to the ground. And he asked them how they were. So he asked them this, literally, How is your shalom? And then he said, How is your aged father that you told me about? Is he he still living? So so he, he literally asked, How is your father's shalom? Does he still have his shalom? Verse 28, They replied, Your servant, our father, is still alive and well. They're basically saying, he still got his shalom. And they bowed down, prostrating themselves before Joseph, fulfilling the dream from back in chapter 37 that started this whole mess off. Chapter 43, verse 29. As Joseph looked about, he saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son. So these two were the full brothers under Rachel. And Joseph asked, is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God, be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph, Joseph hurried out, and he looked for a place to weep. And he went to his private room, and he wept there. And then he kind of cleans up, he washes his face, he comes back out, controlling himself, and he says, serve the food. So he's still been playing kind of hardball with these guys. But in verse 34, it says, when the when the portions were served to them from the from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone's else, as anyone else's. And um, they said and they drank freely with Joseph. Now that is a picture of Shalom. I'm going to pause, think about this. This is Genesis giving us a foreshadowing of the gospel. One of the main promises of the good news of Jesus Christ is the restoration of all that was lost to mankind in Genesis 3 in the fall. Now what was lost? Well, in the fall, shalom was lost. Goodness, peace, completeness, that was all lost. And, and, and instead of shalom, we were given futility, and thorns, and thistles, and frustration, and angst. But the restoration was promised all the way back in Genesis 3, that there would be an offspring, a blessing, that there would be a restorer, a repurposer, who would bring back shalom to the earth. And here in this picture, the sons of Israel feast together in the mercy and forgiveness of the brother that they once sinned against. And brothers and sisters, that is God's invitation to you and to me to come to the feast. Right? To come to the feast with the one we've sinned against, our brother and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that feast is one of shalom. Right. This was also a feast of grace and mercy, just like we enjoy when we come to the table of the sacrament of communion together with our brother and Lord Jesus Christ. We come to that feast in the presence of the one we have sinned against. And we gather with Him. You know, it's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of like the, the Last Supper of Jesus with His disciples. He was redeeming us from sin and suffering and death. So Joseph, he has this meal, this beautiful meal with his brothers, a foreshadowing of the gospel, and yet he continues to test his brothers. There's a little bit more to the story. The plan's not yet complete. Now you remember this. They still don't know that Joseph is their brother. They just think he's an Egyptian kind of bigwig. They don't know this is their brother. They betrayed him into slavery 20 years before for 20 pieces of silver. Again, another foreshadowing to Christ. Verse, uh, chapter 44 now. Chapter 44, verse 1. Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of the house. He said, fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry. Put each man's silver into the mouth of his sack and then put my cup my silver one in the mouth of the youngest one's sack along with his silver and his grain and the steward did as Joseph had said so the brothers get on their donkeys they get on their way they see the pyramids you know fading behind them it's like whew, and they breathe a sigh of relief and then Joseph sends his men to pursue the brothers and they see the brothers and they accuse the brothers of stealing Joseph's cup And of course, the brothers deny it because they have no idea they've stolen Joseph's cup. Verse 12, the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest, ending with the youngest. The cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And and, and at this, they tore their clothes and they all loaded their donkeys and they returned to the city. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in and they threw themselves to the ground before him. This, again, is fulfilling the original dream, right? Joseph tells them they can all go free now, except for the youngest who had his cup. Now, many scholars think this was a, a test by Joseph. This was to test his brothers, right? He, he's saying, well, you can go. You can leave your youngest brother here in Egypt. You, you can go. He wants to see, are they going to do just like they did with him? Well, just leave him in Egypt. Go about their way it's a test but one of the brothers speaks up the brother Judah speaks up he becomes gold he recounts everything that has happened through all the years. And then he says something to Joseph that is astonishing and that is completely different than his attitude would have been 20 years prior. Verse 30, Judah says, So now, if the boy is not with us, when we go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boys, sees the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I don't bring him back to you, I'll bear the blame before you, my father, with my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy, Benjamin, and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? Don't let me see the misery that would come on my father." So Judah, at least, if not all the brothers, have come to terms with their father's favoritism. That's the whole reason they betrayed Joseph 20 years prior. They've accepted life is not perfect. And Judah actually cites favoritism as the reason for freeing Benjamin and sacrificing himself, and it shows that a transformation has taken place in Judah's soul he was willing to sacrifice himself to save his brother to spare his father the pain of losing his other favorite son and you know and this is one of those places where God's word is so amazing to me Just look at this look at this we have this key picture that it foreshadows the substitutionary nature of Christ's death for our sins and Some, you know, some 1900 years after this event of Judah wanting to substitute himself for his brother. God's predicted Messiah, Jesus, comes comes to live among man. And he is a descendant of you get it. He's a descendant of the line of Judah. Right. Who stepped forward to offer himself as a sacrifice for his brother. And through his mother Mary, Jesus is a descendant of Judah. And as the ancestor of Jesus, Judah is the one to step forward. He's willing to take his brother's condemnation. And Jesus, the ultimate son of Judah, would bring our salvation. He would take our condemnation and our sin on himself on the cross. I mean, that is an amazing Picture we get right there from Genesis. The foreshadowing reaches a crescendo here. It's the last chapter, chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself. Um, He could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence So so there was no one with Joseph when he made himself himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that all the Egyptians heard him, even Pharaoh. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified in his presence. (laughs) Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Joseph is like a big God kind of guy, right? He's seeing the big picture here. He says it was to save lives that, that God had you send me here. God repurposed The worst of Joseph's life and wove it into the best of his plans, plans for redemption and plans for life. And y'all, God can repurpose the worst of your life, He can reweave the worst of your life to redeem you, to redeem those you love to redeem those people around you. He can do it. Amen? He can do it. Verse 6, Joseph says, For two years now, there's been a famine in the land. For the next five years, there will be no plowing and no reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve a remnant on the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. This is is to preserve that three-mile long landing strip for God's precise plan of redemption which is the family line of the brother Judah so that the Savior Jesus some 1900 years later could come to fulfill God's plans and purposes to redeem everything for our good and for God's glory. Then verses 14 through 22 they talk about the brothers hugging and kissing you know because they're forgiven and they're reunited now and pharaoh then says to joseph he says tell your brothers to go back home and then to bring all of your family and i'm going to give you the best of everything in egypt you can come and live here and that's how that's how the hebrews ended up in egypt and then in verse 24 verse 24 joseph sends his brothers away and as they're leaving I think this is sort of, sort of curious. As they're leaving, he says, don't quarrel on the way, right? It's like after all this grandeur of Pharaoh offering like the best of everything in Egypt, and Joseph's like, hey, don't fight on the way. I guess like over this time they'd been together, he had noticed they were like quarreling a lot among themselves. So he's like, don't, don't quarrel so much. And he sends them away. <clears throat> now you can read back through the story of Joseph, these 14 chapters. <clears throat> And I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, you'll find a double meaning in almost everything in the story of Joseph. It is loaded, right? It's so much more than just the words on the page. It's a fabulous story in that way. Now, Genesis began by telling us that we were created to share in God's glory and His divine life. But Genesis 3 then tells us we forfeited that glory by the fall, by, by the fall into sin and the rebellion against God. And so we're separated from him. We have this wretchedness to go along with our glory. And then at the end of the chap, uh, chapter 3, there's that promise that there, there is one coming who will redeem all things, who will repurpose all things. <clears throat> and, and now here, that's at the beginning of Genesis. At the end of Genesis, in Joseph's story, we're, we're shown the landing pad for God's restoration of all of creation, for all of humanity. And and it's going to happen through a family. It's going to happen through Jacob's family and ultimately through Judah's family. A great deliverance that will be affected by Jesus Christ, by His death, and by His resurrection. And friends, we're invited. We're invited to the feast. We're inviters to the feast of God's shalom, God's peace, God's restoration. God sent us the true and better Joseph in Jesus Christ. And so I want to ask you as we wrap up today, how's your shalom? How's your shalom? How are you doing In the famine? How is your soul? How are your circumstances? Joseph was the provision in the family. Uh, I'm sorry, Joseph was the provision in the famine for his brothers. And y'all, Christ is the provision in the famine for our souls. He will restore us. And when you bow down to Jesus every day, that's when you will find your shalom, your peace, your goodness, your well-being, your wholeness. <clears throat> Are you doing that? How's your shalom? Because I've got nothing else practical to offer you about how to have shalom, how to have peace, other than revering and receiving Jesus in your heart daily. That's it. That's the way you will find shalom in this life and in the next. To God be the glory. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I'm reminded of your goodness. I'm reminded that none of us were born as children of God. We all become children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would be a people who cling to that promise, that You are working all things for good for those who love You. And so, Lord, some of us this morning, we run to You. We want to place something in Your hands. We've been holding on to something tightly, trying to move forward, but now we want to let go. We want to trust You to repurpose it our good and your glory others of us are running to you we want to be your child we want to let jesus into our lives so that we are children by faith and brothers and sisters wherever you are this morning you know i just take a moment in this silence to talk to god to come to god to let go of those things that need repurposing that need renewing in your life, that need to be redeemed so that you will have shalom. Just take a moment to talk to God. Lord, we trust into Your hands the burdens that have become too heavy to bear. We trust to You to repurpose that which is not good in our lives. We trust our very lives into Your hands this day because we can no longer bear the burden of living apart from You. We need Your shalom. We need Your peace. We ask You to receive us today as children by faith. In Jesus' name, Amen.